Welcome to You Hear It First, an unofficial, unfiltered history of MTV News. I'm Benjamin Wagner. For much of its 36 years, MTV News was where young people everywhere heard their music, movie, political, and pop culture news first. And from 1996 to 2014, I had a front row seat. Whether covering the latest music video, blockbuster, or presidential campaign, MTV News was a laboratory for experimentation and a place where rules were made to be judiciously broken. These are the stories behind the stories from the people who told the stories. This is season one of You Hear It First. Throughout the 90s, writer, reporter, and producer Abby Kears sat down with some of rock and hip-hop's biggest legends and tackled some of the most important social issues of the day. From hosting The Rock Report on Westwood One, Abby went on to write and produce The Week in Rock and a wide range of documentaries on music, politics, and youth culture, including Gangsta Rap, an MTV News special report, and the Chooser Lose special Race and the Race. At a time when the dot-com team, of which I was then a part, was largely considered a pack of oddball, also-ran nerds, Abby was always a fan and always a friend, often popping into our modest, crowded digs to find out what was popping online. In this week's You Hear It First, Abby recounts interviewing Joe Perry for her high school paper, tracking down an errant Rakim, covering Snoop and Tupac's respective trials, hanging with Kurt Loder and Mick Jagger, and you won't believe who turns up to perform at one of MTV's infamous company parties. Do listen on. So I had already been doing something very similar to what MTV News was doing. And I was also a writer, a freelance writer, and I would write for different music publications. So I had and worked previously as a radio DJ. That was my first commercial radio job was, oh gosh, 1985. So I got a job at WBAB, Long Island. (laughs) So I started working as a part-time radio DJ. And then eventually I did the Rock Report, hosting that and uh, working as a music correspondent for NBC Radio Networks, which was then eventually owned by Westwood One. Swallowed up by a conglomerate like everything else. What are your memories of music then? Like what were your early songs, your early artists? My grandparents were my legal guardians. And so they pretty much raised me since birth. And I was living, you know, living and with my grandparents right up until 1992. I was born in Manhattan and we lived in Queens up until about the age of three. We moved to Comac. So I was pretty much raised on Long Island since 1968. The music that my grandfather was listening to was just whatever was on pop radio. He just always had the AM radio on. Yeah, yeah. So somewhere at around age 12, I had asked my, you know, we were just hanging out and at the house and he was listening to the radio and I asked him, I said, you know, do DJs make a lot of money? (laughs) And he said, yeah. Oh, yeah, they they make a lot of money. It's like, ah. Do they have to go to college? <laughs> and uh, because he was working as a warehouse manager, you know, money was always a discussion in the house. Yeah. 
if not an argument in the house. Yeah. So, uh, and as a kid at age 12, I'm just thinking, you know, different, you know, just different occupations. And so I asked him about that, about, do you have to go to college? And he's like, you know, I don't know. That was basically it. And we just listened to the radio. So a lot of AM radio I would hear. Eventually I started, I mean, I would, I had my own little record collection. I would buy 45s. Like what? What were a couple of those 45s? Some of the records I was listening to as a kid, or I purchased 45s, some novelty records like Mr. Jaws. I think it was Dickie Goodman. (laughs) Luckily on Long Island and in Comac, we had MTV available with just basic cable right from the very beginning. Yeah. So I was viewing uh, MTV from the start and I loved it. And eventually I was 15, maybe at that time, 81. I wrote an article on MTV for my high school newspaper. Oh, I love that. Uh, in Co- the Comax South, the slate, it was called. Yes. <laughs> and I did an interview with Mark Goodman. So You landed an interview with Mark Goodman in high school. That's amazing. Yeah. I had called up the MTV press department and requested an interview with Mark Goodman. And we did a telephone. We did a phoner. Did a phoner. <laughs> and my high school school counselor let me use their phone. I love it. And I had the little phone attachment to record. And I still have the cassette. And of course you do. I love that. <laughs> Was that your first interview with someone outside of that sort of space? Well, I really liked him because of radio. Yeah. I knew him yeah. of him from radio. I had really become very focused on, you know, the different personalities and where they went. And certainly Mark Goodman was familiar to me. I had an interview with Joe Perry scheduled, but he was asleep. Oh, no. He sat down next to me on the couch. This was at a club called My Father's Place. This was during Soundcheck. He was with the band, the Joe Perry Project. Let the music do the talking. He was in the green room with me, sitting on the couch. He fell asleep. And his manager apologized and said, so sorry. He's just really tired. Mm-hmm. And as a teenager, because I at the time was I, I was still a teenager, yes. I was a really big Aerosmith fan. Yeah. And I was like, okay, so he's asleep, not knowing anything about heroin addiction. Right, I was say, yeah. He might be nodding. Yeah. Not knowing anything that maybe he had just that it's drug related yeah. Yeah. and that yeah. he's just he's out. So I stayed for the show. It was a great show. I even have some photos that I took. As the 70s continued, and as I, my music taste started got to... sophisticated. Yeah. I bought Blackwater, the Doobie Brothers. Oh, yeah. And Kiss, Beth, the Rolling Stones, Bitch. Oh, yeah. Which was the B-side to Brown Sugar. And I thought it was such a great record, knowing nothing about the Rolling Stones. I think at that time I was that was real. I was really young, maybe nine years old or something like that. Well, yeah. I didn't know what that song of course. was about. Why would you? Sure. As a teenager, became a huge Rolling Stones fan. I bought albums at that time as a teen, and I was buying um, Exile on Main Street, Let It Bleed, 
Get Your Yaya's Out, which was a live record. So Dave Cyrulnik originally interviewed me, and uh, this was 1989. To He was looking for producers for MTV News. And my background was mostly radio and writing for different print publications. And so he suggested in our interview that I talk to Michael Shore, who was the managing editor at MTV News. This was back in the day when it was, they were still, the office was at 1775 Broadway. And so I got in touch with Michael Shore and Michael Shore was the one who hired me as a writer in 1990 to join MTV News as a fill-in for Michael Azarad, who was a Rolling Stone writer and writer for MTV News, but he was working on a book on Nirvana. This was November 1990. It was there probably a week or two, and then 91 came, and they had me full-time as a permalancer, which yeah, was permalancer, freelancer, but, yeah, yeah. but every day. Yeah. yeah. So I came <laughs> in as a writer, and I worked on The Week in Rock as a writer up until 93, I think. And then I was producing. I started producing. So, And the producing really started as... I was still writing, but I just would pitch ideas. And the first idea I pitched was to do a women in film piece. And so sitting in Dave Cyrulnik's office, I had learned that if you want to get your story, you have to have everything written down and ready to go. So the first pitch was women in film. And he did explain to me, the story has to have a beginning, middle and end. Of course. He needs to know the who, what, where, and why. So that's what I pitched, women in film, and we kind of worked through what that would be, and that was my first producer assignment, but I co-produced it with a producer, Mark Doctorow. Yes, Doctorow. Yeah. (laughs) But it was my first time producing a piece, not just writing copy for the intro for Kurt Loder to read, or Tabitha Soren. Tabitha was there, too, by that mm-hmm, time. Mm-hmm. So uh, so that was 1992. I started uh, pitching different story ideas to produce, and that was the first one. So Mark Doctorow was the producer who I worked with, and he co-produced the piece with me. So I was very familiar of how you know the scripts go and voiceover and music folds and video up and yeah. interview clips. And all of that. But I didn't realize as we sat and put the script together how tedious it was in an edit to sit there and lay in everything. Your music beds, your shots, your VOs. And I loved it, you know, but I was like, oh, I didn't, you know, I realized this is really hard work. Writing is hard, but this is really hard work but it's really rewarding as well. So I just remember thinking, I love this. The finished product was great. And then that was it, off to the races. And that's when I had pitched that Long Island rap piece with Rakim and quite a number of other artists too. And that was the start of producing. What was your entree to the channel broadly and MTV News specifically? Do you remember the first week, early impressions, first people you met? My first impression was it was pretty damn cool. Yeah. I had been watching MTV since it originally aired. And I had also applied to get 
any position I could get at MTV, not just MTV News. So even before I approached the news department, MTV News, I first had Bangers Ball. Not that I want to say I was, I'm like the biggest metalhead. I don't classify myself as a metalhead. I didn't see anything wrong with applying for a job in that department. So production assistant, I'll start from the bottom, whatever it takes. You walk in and you see the reception desk on the 24th floor, which I believe was shaped like a rock. When I started in November 1990, the newsroom was in the middle of the 24th floor and it was windowless. And I think originally it was closet. (laughs) It was supposed to be like some sort of, you know, storage closet. But that became the MTV News newsroom. So that's where I started. And uh, one of the challenges for Michael Shore was that he did want to bring me in full time as a writer, but there was no physical space to put myself and others. So it was a challenge. And I had to sit at the intern's desk for a while. And wherever they would put me, I could still write. And there was also the limitation, too, of the amount of wangs that were available for us to write on, to write scripts on. So there was only maybe three or four wangs in the news department. I think this is the fun part about behind the scenes at MTV News is it's one of the hallmarks of that place is it's scrappy. It's DIY, right? Yeah, I think that at that time, too, it was the absolute thought that it all can be done. We'll just figure out a way to get it done. So, and that was what was great too with Dave Cyrulnik is that even bringing in a Macintosh in the early days, we had one Macintosh. Chris Bell was (gasps) tech guru. Yeah, yeah. And he came in and showed me how to use the Macintosh. And on the Macintosh was a program loaded for LexisNexis. Oh my gosh, yeah. And MTV News had an account with LexisNexis and I was able to research artists and whatever I needed to know. This was predating the World Wide Web. Yeah, 100%. Otherwise, you'd have had to go to the New York Public Library, right? Like my early career, I'm in the library all the time. All the time. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And making a lot of phone calls, which you still had to do. Yep. But LexisNexis that made all of the newspapers around the country available for us to search uh, information and background on different stories to get story ideas too, just by doing searches, by doing a search on, say, you want to find out what REM is doing right now. Well, here you go. You put in a LexisNexis search and, and also the legal stuff too. You can find out a lot of the legal background because a lot of legal cases were going on that I was covering some of my early memories were even pre, you know, death row records. I mean, Dre and Snoop. At MTV News, Yo! MTV Raps, the show was covering West Coast, East Coast, and worldwide hip-hop. And the news department, too. But I wasn't there yet. I didn't join until uh, November of 1990. And uh, hip-hop was a large part of what I pitched I set up an interview with Rakim, Eric B. and Rakim, legend. In this case, with this interview, it was something that the record company gave me his phone number 
and said, call him. And you set up the interview with him and you follow through on it because we're not able to do that because he, he kind of goes with his own schedule. Yeah. We had it all set up to do an interview with Rakim uh, for the Long Island rap piece. And also, you know, evergreen questions to ask him too. while always. Yeah. And so we had a video crew set up at, in the conference room on the 24th floor at 1515. Now, this was before cell phones, but he was not there. So I made the decision uh, to go to his apartment. So I went to his Manhattan apartment and he wasn't there. So here we are. It's August 1992. I'm standing outside of Rakim's Manhattan apartment, kind of waiting and waiting and waiting. Had to go to a payphone before cell phones. So I had to go to a payphone, call, see if Rakim's there at the apartment, still nothing. Call Cyrilnik, as in Dave Cyrilnik. (laughs) And uh, I talked to him about, well, what should I do? We have a crew waiting. You know, at this time, it was somewhere, you know, in those days, you pay for a half day crew. That's all I had scheduled. And he said, well, we're paying for the crew. If we have to go into, you know, a full day, we'll pay for it. And that's what I did. I just waited for Rakim. And then he showed up. And at that point, he was surprised (laughs) that I was still there. As we were driving to 1515 in Rakim's vehicle, he said, the reason I'm doing this is that there's not many people of color who are in your position. And I didn't want to let you down. And I also didn't want to let us down. And so he made a decision based on, this is the first time we were meeting, that it really was something he connected with me just based on a similar life experience, Mm -hmm. even though we've never met before. I never really thought about it because I had always worked in a predominantly white male field. And I never really thought about it that when you're working with somebody who is of color, might be looking at you in a different way. I had interviewed Snoop and Dre back in February of 1993. The uh, first interview, they had The Chronic came out. And so I had called up a record company uh, publicist, Sherry Folio, who I knew from my rock report in radio, who was doing their publicity. She had handled an interview that I did with Bon Jovi and Skid Row. (laughs) And now she's doing the publicity for Dr. Dre and Snoop Dogg. (laughs) So promoting the chronic. So uh, they were coming into New York, into Manhattan, to tape a segment with the Rosie Perez show. Rosie Perez had a TV show at the time. And so at that time, I scheduled an interview as a producer, writer, and interviewer for MTV News and interviewed Snoop, his first interview for MTV News and interviewed Dre. And it's a great interview. That was sort of the introduction for me to Dre and Snoop. The Chronic just came out the year prior, but it was the time of the chronic. 
So I just really liked Snoop. <laughs> I thought he had a great vibe. Yeah. And even the things he said to me off camera, I just remember, you know, a discussion we were talking about New York fashion. And he said hmm. he's looking for, he wants to go shopping for Timberlands. So it's just something so simple, like just to have a conversation and, yeah, yeah. and talk. There were other things, you know, that probably were said that I was like, ah, I don't know. Yeah, for sure, yeah. Know about this. <laughs> but on camera doing the interview, they both were really great. And uh, I think what happened at that time, we just, this was before Dre was having a lot of legal troubles. This was before Snoop and the murder trial. So Snoop's legal problems, other than a long list of legal problems he had previously as a member of the Crips, mm -hmm. so, and uh, which had been long, as far as he had told me, at that time had passed. He's focused on music. He's on to a new path in his life. And he was so young, you know. So it was it was a new time, but he was arrested in uh, September, I believe it was. It was a very serious matter. Being on one side where we could talk about the music and certainly there's a challenge alone just covering music at that time where I'm dealing with an artist who is, yes, there's it's challenging. So you have to become... Completely, this is not about being a fan of music. This is not about, oh, wow, this is a great record. I also don't right. condone, mm -hmm. even though I thought The Chronic was a great album, production-wise, musically, sonically, lyrically, you know, the skills and all of that. I, I might have a bit of a personal, you know, yeah. conflict with the lyrics. I mean, Bitches Ain't Shit, D's Nuts, yeah. great tracks. Yeah. Musically, sonically, lyrically, but I might personally have my own, you know, thoughts. For sure. Uh -huh. But being a person who understands there's there's the job, and that starts with the job of reporting on the story, and then also hearing what their story is, having an understanding of who the person is. So it's not really the early days of hip-hop where I could say, you know, kids can listen to this. You know, it's like you can have this at a birthday party. You know, it's it was more of a reflection of their life and storytelling yeah. in the mix. And I would like to know more about it. And that was part of how I looked at it. So the music and having an understanding and talking with both Snoop and Dre and having an understanding. When it then became something so serious as a young man lost his life, mm -hmm. and let's find out what happened as far as I did talk to Dave Cyrilnik about, can we cover this? And he said, yes. So off to LA. <laughs> mm -hmm. I went, into, it was December of 1993 that I was able to get an interview with Snoop Dogg I also spoke with the district attorney in the case of the Snoop Dogg murder trial. This is actually predating the first trip to L.A. was just to talk to Snoop. I went right, to the courthouse. Right. He was being indicted. So I went there to cover the indictment as a producer. So eventually there was an entire team 
that was then on the Snoop trial story. They hired Laura Porter, who was an attorney and a correspondent who had initially worked with MTV News. And it was just a team of people, Juliet Honan, Heather Perry, John Norris was doing segments from there too. But going back to the, you know, just pitching the idea, what I had thought was that if the viewers are listening to the music, if the viewers are watching the videos, and now there's a story that needs to be told, but told completely unbiased. You know, I know we're music fans, but we need to have an understanding of what really happened. After interviewing Snoop in December of 93, I had been in touch with Tupac's management. He wasn't on death row yet, but he had worked with Interscope Records on the Above the Rim soundtrack, because that was a film that he was in, and also did music. And so I had approached Tupac's management about interviewing Tupac with the same thought that to have an understanding of his personal background, his story, what does he have to say? I know we can't talk about the legal stuff. We can't talk about it because it's a trial Mm -hmm. for Snoop. And then eventually what happened with Tupac, there was several cases going on with Tupac. So in New York and LA. So I did approach Tupac's management company about not only doing an interview, but having him featured in a show that I had pitched on gangster rap. The what is gangster rap question, which I still, again, wanted to remove myself from being biased, possibly. Mm-hmm. I just wanted to hear what the story was. For hip-hop music, you can be a fan and you have your memories, just like we were talking about memories of listening to novelty records as yeah, a kid, yeah. you know, or pop music. This is a new form of hip-hop pop music that's not just radio-friendly, so to say. It's not confection, yeah. Yeah, it's... it's it just got a little bit deeper. I mean, you know, in in the 80s too, especially in the late 80s, understanding that there is a lifestyle that could be problematic to explain. Are we glorifying it? Are we justifying it? And, you know, you, you kind of walk away after you present all of the facts and the stories, and then you can form your own opinion of what you think yeah. of the music and and of that genre of music. Hey, it's Benjamin. In our post-pandemic world of hybrid work, heightened performance expectations, global unrest, and economic flux, there is a lot to manage. And most of us need all the help we can get. My company, Essential Industries, is a boutique coaching and consulting firm specializing in individual and organizational strategy, communications, and collaboration. If you, your team, or organization need help creating, innovating, communicating, or collaborating effectively, facing uncertainty with competence, or leading meaningful transformation, visit BenjaminWagner.com or email me at BenjaminBWagner at gmail.com right now. I'd love to help. Now back to the show. After interviewing Snoop in December of 93, I had been in touch with Tupac's management He wasn't on death row yet, but he had worked with Interscope Records on the Above the Rim soundtrack, because that was a film that he was in, and also did music. And so I had approached 
Tupac's management about interviewing Tupac with the same thought that to have an understanding of his personal background, his story, what does he have to say? I know we can't talk about the legal stuff. We can't talk about it because it's a trial Mm -hmm. for Snoop. And then eventually what happened with Tupac, there was several cases going on with Tupac. So in New York and LA. So I did approach Tupac's management company about not only doing an interview, but having him featured in a show that I had pitched on gangster rap. The what is gangster rap question, which I still, again, wanted to remove myself from being biased, possibly. Mm-hmm. I just wanted to hear what the story was. For hip-hop music, you can be a fan and you have your memories, just like we were talking about memories of listening to novelty records as yeah, a kid, yeah. you know, or pop music. This is a new form of hip-hop pop music that's not just radio-friendly, so to say. It's not confection, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, it just got a little bit deeper. I mean, you know, in, in the 80s too, especially in the late 80s, understanding that there is a lifestyle that could be problematic to explain. Are we glorifying it? Are we justifying it? And, you know, you, you kind of walk away after you present all of the facts and the stories, and then you can form your own opinion of what you think yeah. of the music and, and of that genre of music. It is a hard job to remain neutral and objective and to keep the focus. And if you really do focus on listening to the person's story, telling the person's story, also getting both sides of the story, because it really is a they said, they said Mm -hmm. a lot of the times, it came a long way from reporting on (laughs) uh, the beginnings of MTV music television as a teenager to reporting on. But I I think I had at some point realized that, you know, basic journalism that I learned in those years of being not only somebody who went to school for it, but actually just writing a story, a a music feature. It's sort of the same thing. It's just the subject has changed. And when I say sort of, I really do mean, oh no, it is the same thing. (laughs) It's just a serious place that I never thought I was as going to be somebody who was reporting on uh, criminal cases. Uh, yeah. At the same time, the OJ trial was going on. Right. Snoop Dogg trial was going on. A little jarring, but yeah. I also felt very focused. I felt that this was something that, that I myself am interested in knowing about, and I think other people would be interested in too. But Tupac, going back to Tupac, when he first came into, we did an interview in 1994. This was after I had interviewed Snoop. They were not really, uh, they hadn't recorded together yet. I wrote a letter to Tupac's management, and I did mention that I had interviewed Snoop, and I was hoping to, you know, interview Tupac with the same objective approach. We're letting him tell his story. And they said yes, but we had to agree to a lot of terms that if they were not happy with something, and this is because, again, for his, because he was also dealing with a lot of legal issues, 
So the night before he was being sentenced in the Alan Hughes assault case, that's the day that I interviewed Tupac in Beverly Hills. So it was it was heavy. It was March 9th, 1994. It was right before, it was the day before he was about to be sentenced in the Allen Hughes assault case. And there was the prospect that he was going to jail. Yeah. So it was a very intense time, but he was just so great. He just gave us such access and so much time and some of the best work that I did as a producer from working with a great crew, getting the lighting and the sound and just allowing him to speak. It just worked out. There was was just something going on (laughs) that day that it just all kind of aligned and worked really well to watch it all these years later too. I have a great appreciation for everybody who I worked with to make that happen in the first place. Just bringing it back to Kurt Loder, that was one of my highlights that I was mentioning about the Rolling Stones and that moment of being the music fan and that separate of talking about Snoop and Tupac. But yeah, you did like a whole show. I did in 19, 1994. I was assigned. Which to, tour? This was the Voodoo Lounge. Oh, of course. I saw that tour, Abby. Yeah. Yeah. And I was assigned. Was Michael Alex all over you? Nothing gets him going, I think, like the Stones. I think we sat next to each other for a while, for at least a year. And I don't remember. I I remember he was really into Jane's Addiction. Yeah, for sure. But I don't know if we ever got into a Rolling Stones. Oh, that's amazing. Maybe I just heard a lot of that. That's amazing. That's great. He likes Keith Richards a lot. I remember That's a good point. Good point. Maybe it's a differentiation to him. So from brown sugar and bitch to what? Interviewing Mick. So Kurt and I went to RFK Stadium for the opening of the tour. We shot stand-ups and he also did the interviews with Mick Jagger and Keith Richards. Yeah. I was like, oh, this is this is this is great. (laughs) So we did that. And afterwards I put together the show. This was August of 1994, and the show aired and the Video Music Awards were a couple of weeks later, and I was backstage as a producer interviewing artists backstage. So I interviewed Mick Jagger backstage at the VMAs. And just, you know, again, we kind of ask one sheet questions and yeah. questions just in general about, you know, oh, who, who are you looking forward to seeing tonight? And what yep. were the highlights so far? And, you know, things about the Video Music Awards. But we did an interview and a very short one, but after, you know, the interview backstage for MTV news, he said to me off, you know, off camera, he said to me, you did a really good job. And he was talking about the voodoo lounge tour yeah. special that had just aired. And he said, you did a really good job. And it's like me, yeah, like, I mean, I was the producer. So yes, it's, I interact I don't think I had a conversation with Mick Jagger at that time. You know, is Kurt and Kurt's doing the interview and I'm doing the job of setting up the shot and, yeah. you know, roll tape and do all that. But it, it was great. So he said, you did a good job. Oh, Abby, that's great. <laughs> it's like full circle. Yeah. So as a teenage, uh, you know, oh my God, as a fan for all those years that it, it felt really good 
to be acknowledged yeah. by Mick Jagger. What was your most random but like surprisingly excellent assignment? I was assigned to go with Jimmy Jam to Six Flags Great Adventure and cover the opening of Batman the Ride <laughs> at Six Flags Great Adventure. That's classic. That sounds like a classic assignment. So let's talk about something that is, it just was so much fun, yeah. you know, because yeah. it, we got to go on the ride. I had uh, to, as a producer, I had to get on the ride with him. Yeah. He was mic'd. And so I had to instruct him. So I got to ride Batman the ride on the opening of it and also then film it. Yeah. And Mark Doctro produced the segment I that aired on The Week in Rock. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It was so much fun. So that's a random yeah. sort of an assignment. And it was connected because Bob Pittman, I think at the time, had asked Luda Corradina to cover it. And then I got the assignment. And it was uh, Tracy Jordan, who worked in talent relations, who said, why don't you bring Jimmy Jam? He's a big uh, roller coaster enthusiast. So it's that group effort of like, yeah, where you're yeah. even just on the 24th floor and you're just talking amongst each other. Right, right, right. And it comes together. And then the next thing you know, I'm with Jimmy Jam at Six Flags Great Adventure. Filming the loop in a Batmobile. <laughs> <laughs> MTV parties were legend. What's a outrageous memory you have of those parties if you have one? I remember getting a watch every year. Yes, you're right. <laughs> of course. Oh my gosh. Oh, should have saved those, Abby. I bet you have yours. I don't. Oh, okay, good. I feel better. A friend of mine has the t-shirt from Prince played the Ooh, Ritz yeah. for an MTV party. Yeah. That was the best. So you get to see Prince perform. Yeah. And then it's just for us. What is the legacy of MTV News for you, Abby? I think it allowed me to grow as a producer, writer, reporter. They allowed me to, you know, voice what I was thinking. And it could be, again, something, it didn't have to be one specific beat. I did a lot of hip hop. But I also like a lot of good music. I yeah. like good music. So I think that was part of it. And the learning on the job, you know, so a whole new skill set I learned from writing that now I, you know, I had that down and reporting, I had that down. But the video editing and, you know, every nuance of what makes, you know, a great television piece, whether it's a half hour show or it's a three minute and 23 second piece. I really did on the job learn a lot of that. And that's a great memory. What, Abby, is your sense of the legacy of MTV News for everyone else? When thinking of the legacy, I'm thinking of you hear it first. Mm. And it really was you hear it first. Because at that time, without social media, without, there were other outlets, whether it was the Entertainment Tonight's or the Entertainment Reporting that was available on television, but it was, it, it was more than that. And that's what I think is the legacy. And just being, you know, somebody who was there early on, 
all those years, but it was still being done right up until the shutdown. Yeah. Maybe now you have other outlets that could get you that news faster or first. But at that time, I think to, it's commendable to, to think about so many people that have worked there and have gone on to such great work. You Hear It First, an unofficial and unfiltered history of MTV News is an essential industries podcast. Please subscribe, rate, and comment wherever you get your podcasts and visit benjaminwagner.com for more episodes and information on our creative coaching and consulting services. Until next time, it's a good feeling to know we're lifelong friends.